Good on you, Ellie. Like, where do you stop reading the Bible? Do you go, it's good up until there and no more? Like, exactly. We could have kept reading. Good on you. Uh, good to be together. My name is Jez. If we haven't met, let me pray for us. Father God, what an amazing thing it is to be gathered together right now and addressed by you, the living God. And we ask, please, that by your voice in this word, you might draw us near to you in a very real way. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is Christmas season. I wonder if you can relate to this experience, you know, when you're growing up as a kid and each year you'd have the extended family Christmas bash and you'd go along and you'd look forward to seeing the cousins and maybe the grandparents, there'd be food, fun, prezies and all of that. But did you have this thing, or I had this thing, where there was always at least one person where you're like, who are you? <laughs> Why are you here? How are you connected to the family? I, I don't see you, you know, your mum and dad say, oh, it's great Uncle Mel, and, you know, great Uncle Mel was married to your great aunt's sisters, whatever. You know, great Uncle Mel has really no bearing on my life from day to day, he just shows up once a year, disappears, I can get on with it. Well, I think that for many of us, that's what Melchizedek is like, the great Uncle Mel of the Bible. You know, you might have heard of him, that, that he's in there somewhere, that he's connected to this Bible Jesus thing, but you're not sure how, because he's not there in the nativity scene, you know, you don't see him, it's Christmas, he's not there on Easter. Who is he? And in fact, I think there'll be some Christians here who have never heard of him, who have never thought about him and are thinking, I'm getting on with my Christian life with Jesus just fine, what's he got to do with it? Well, here's the thing. As we work our way through this ancient letter written to a historical group of people, Melchizedek is a massive deal for the writer. Massive deal. Because priesthood is such a huge concern that he writes about. And I think right there, for many of us, we're like, oh, it's kind of why we're a bit slow to connect to these things, because our culture isn't that excited about priests about priesthood. I mean, maybe just the name triggers the association of horrible abuses. Or they represent, you know, organised religion that is stiff, that is stifled, that's inauthentic. A much more modern approach to spirituality just doesn't overcomplicate things, right? Like banking, if I want to go manage my money, I don't have to go see a teller who on behalf of the bank gives me my money. I just pull out my phone, I manage my money wherever I am. Doctors, you know, you got a rash. You don't need to go to a doctor, you just Google it, <laughs> right? Just cut out the middleman, middlewoman. And so many in our day think, well, look, if I'm going to draw near to spiritual things, then I'll do it on my own terms in a personal, private, authentic way. That's how I'll connect to God. But here's the thing. You desperately need a priest. I, you, we desperately need someone to stand between God and us. Why? Because between us and God is a chasm, an eternally deep chasm. 
And if we try and draw near to the holy God on our own, we'll be lost forever. See, the one true God, see, we hear that and we go, oh, I don't like the sound of that God. I'd rather think of a God who is more approachable, who's better tempered, who I can... But do you want to deal with the God of your imagination? Or do you want to deal with the one true God who is? Because here's the thing about that God. He is holy. He is mighty. He is pure. Our God is light. In him there is no darkness. Before him no impurity can stand. Therefore sinners, you, me, have no hope of just drawing on up before a holy God will be destroyed. If you think you can, if you'd like to think that you can just deal with God on your own terms, then you have massively underestimated His holiness and the problem of your sin. We desperately need a priest, one who will stand before this God and ask. And here's the thing, it's not me. It's not the man or woman in white robes down the road. This priest that you desperately need is the one and only high priest in the order of Melchizedek. That's where we've got to work. Mel Mel, Mel who? Well, the Bible is saying your greatest priest, your greatest need is the one in the order of Melchizedek. We're going to have to do some work this morning. Now, if you are new to these things, we love that you are here, checking the things of Jesus out. That's great. Heads up, even Christians who have been around the Bible a long time will struggle with this stuff. Okay, so don't be put off by just this morning. We are going to have to work. In fact, the author has told us that he doesn't want to deal with just the milk stuff, baby Christian stuff. He wants to get to solid food, to meat. Now he hits it. So we're really going to have to push in to think hard. Let's do that. Who is Melchizedek? Chapter 7, verse 1, he introduces him. Uh, rather than read it, he, he's actually referencing those original events that we read from Genesis 14. Let's come back there. Genesis 14, if you've got a Bible, turn back there. Keep something in Hebrews 7. We'll be back there in a sec. Now, as we're going there, just a very rough timeline. Give you a sense of where we're up to in history. We're about to read an account with Abram, who gets renamed Abraham. That's how we commonly know him. So he's a long way back here. You might have heard of Moses. We'll deal with these guys, Levi, Aaron. David is about a thousand years before Jesus, who, of course, is in the first century. So Genesis 14, a long, long way back. And the context there is Abraham's nephew Lot has been captured by an alliance of kings. And so Abraham seeks to rescue him by forming his own alliance. He goes to battle. He wins the war. So that verse 16 He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other children. After Abram returned from defeating Kedalama and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him. Skip over to verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abraham goes on to say, no, I won't receive anything from you so that you can't boast that you made me rich. Now, unless you were looking at your Bible or paying attention, you wouldn't know that I've just skipped over a bunch of verses there. Do you see how it just flows? The the king of Sodom appears, verse 17, before Abraham. Verse 21, the king of Sodom 
speaks and on it goes. Except we have this sudden interruption, verse 18, of this Melchizedek, who we find is king of Salem. He brings out bread and wine. We read he's a priest of God Most High. He blesses Abram. And then Abram gives him a tenth of everything. Gone. That's all we have of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Until we get to one point I'll point out later. Just like that, the account is flowing and then suddenly he appears. We learn that he's a king priest, a king of Salem, which most likely will become Jaru Salem. He blesses Abraham, he receives a tenth from him and then he's gone. That, when you come back to Hebrews chapter 7, is what this author is going to make so much about. And you're like, what? Come back there. Hebrews 7. He's just recounted some of those details in the first couple of verses. Then verse 3, this Melchizedek, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, what do we make of that? This Melchizedek, without beginning of days, end of days, without mother, father, and so on. Well, uh, many people over the years, Christians, and still today, believe that this is a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ. That is, we're a long way before the time of Jesus, but all the way back here, the Son of God, who's in heaven, comes down, makes an appearance as Melchizedek, Abraham and so on, and then returns to heaven, and so we never read of him again. Possibly, it's called a Christophany, possibly, but I don't think so. Not because I don't believe in miracles, we're about to celebrate a great miracle at Christmas, the virgin gave birth, and it's okay if you do want to hold that, as long as we get to where it's pointing. I don't think this is an angel, we'll read around the time of Moses especially, you know, the burning bush and the Lord, the angel, is this some kind of angel? I don't think so. Rather, I think Melchizedek was a real historical man who had a biological mother, father, and who really died. Now, it's not unreasonable to imagine a priest. See, we're not actually that far from the time of Noah. God will make a new beginning and through Noah, particularly the line of Shem, it's, it's not unreasonable to think that some thread of monotheism, of knowledge of the one true creator God, has survived through some generations, at least in the family of Melchizedek. Abraham clearly recognises Melchizedek as someone great. But here's the striking thing. When you read through the account of Genesis, and maybe a couple of times, you realise that anyone who's anyone in the book of Genesis gets a long run-up, gets the introduction, the genealogy, where they came from. It's noted when they die and who came from them. All the big figures in Genesis have genealogy, not Melchizedek. He flashes before your eyes like a shooting star. So when you read Hebrews 7 verse 3, without beginning and end and so on, a literalistic reading of that verse leads you down the path of this is God showing up or an angel showing up, something like that. But a literary reading, 
that is, one that is sensitive to what the literature is doing, not just saying, leads me and many others to see Melchizedek as a real historical figure, mother, father, dies and so on. But because none of these details are recorded in the account, as they are for all the other significant figures, it's as if they don't exist. It's as if he doesn't have mother, father. It's as if he doesn't die. It's as if he's never succeeded. Not necessarily insisting kind of literalistically, but in a literary sense. He just kind of keeps hanging all the way through. Now, this is an argument from silence, but silence is significant when you're expecting a noise. There's something very different about Melchizedek. So there is who I put this man is to you. Now, whether he's historical, whether he's a visitation of God, as long as we see where he points, this is the main thing. And this is where the author now goes. The first big point that he wants to make is that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. I mean, oh, all right. To a Jew, Melchizedek is greater than your father Abraham. That's drawn out in the principle of verse 7 there. Without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. The one who is greater gives blessing. The one who is lesser receives blessing. And so catch that. Abraham. And if you've read just a couple of chapters before, he's got the promises of God. Surely this is the most blessed man on planet Earth at the time. He's the lesser receiving blessing from Melchizedek. There's the first big point. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. But he makes this point because he wants to now... Here's the big thing of the chapter, right? He, he wants to point out that the priesthood of Melchizedek is far greater than the priesthood that will come from Aaron and that Melchizedek is pointing us to Jesus. Okay, this is what he's going to do. The big point here is Melchizedek but greater than Abraham, but the priesthood that will come from Melchizedek is far greater than this priesthood, Levi, Aaron, we'll come to him in a moment, that will come from him. All right, this is what he's going to argue. And just briefly again, remember the context. Another reason why it takes work for us to connect with this stuff. It was written originally to first century Jews who have converted to Christianity. Now, this, this is massive, right? Because they've embraced Jesus as their new high priest. But... Jesus isn't from the right tribe to be a high priest. Because, as we'll see, the right tribe is the tribe of Levi. Jesus isn't from that. He's from the tribe of Judah. Now, who of you this week, this month, this year, or ever, have laid awake at bed, in bed just going, oh, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can... Now, we've got questions for God, right? We might have concerns, we might have doubts. That's probably not one of them. This is a massive concern for these first readers. How could Jesus be a great high priest when he's from the wrong family line? Because after all, the, the Jews have had their identity, both as individuals and as a people, a culture, deeply shaped by priesthood. If we can flick up the next slide there, John, you'll see just a little bit more detail. 
this priesthood here that runs all the way down, there's been this line of priests which had to come from Levi. And in coming to Jesus, they're asked to embrace something new. Just trying to appreciate how big that is for them. This doesn't really cut it, but it's going on for me at the moment. I grew up in a rugby league, loving playing family. I'm a buffhead who loves the sport of buffheads, right? It's all I ever knew from the start. I've got my mum right here to thank for that, and my dad. Okay, I just grew up loving rugby league. Recently, just in the last year or two, my dad has converted to AFL. (laughs) You you know that scrappy game where grown men in tight shorts squabble over the ball that they've just dropped again and dropped again? That game where you get a point for missing? He's, he's converted from rugby league to that. And he's trying to convince me and my kids that it's the superior code. I will never embrace that. There is something deep in me. I, I can see another guy out here who gets that. How could I? This is part of who I am. Now, the problem with this illustration, if you're tracking with it, it's actually... AFL must be greater than rugby league for it to work. But the, the, the Jews have been told to leave this priesthood of Levi, Aaron, to a new one. Now, if you don't know anything about football, you're like, oh, league, AFL, whatever, it's all just football. When we don't really appreciate priesthood, we say, hey, Duke, priesthood, Levi, Judah, does it really matter? Yes. And the reason that it matters so much is not that because they're stubborn, but because God said it must be the tribe of Levi. Through Moses, God gives a word saying, of the 12 tribes, this is the priestly one. And in fact, you get events through the the time where people outside of this tribe try and be priest, and it goes badly for them. This is huge. So how does the preacher speak to their concern? Well, by pointing out from their own Jewish scriptures that God has also spoken about another superior priesthood. That's the argument from verse 11 onwards, right through to the end of the chapter. And it's a tight argument, so I need to step through it bit by bit with you. We've got to work at this, okay? Have a look at verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood. See, here it is. God gave the law to Moses. Here's that priesthood. If perfection could have been achieved, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in a different order, the one of Melchizedek? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. One little sentence which is such a massive thing in our Bibles. Because God's law said it must be Levi, then if there's a change of priest, then the law must be changed. Something huge is happening in the coming of Jesus. Our modern problem is we don't see a need for a priest. That wasn't the ancient problem. The problem was that it must be the right priest. Jesus didn't fit the bill. Well, his answer, verse 15. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, 
the law of Moses, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. See, Melchizedek is a priest. The Jews knew that. He's all the way back at the start of their Bible. He's greater than Abraham. He didn't come from the tribe of Levi, from Aaron, yet he was greater than Abraham. And what is true of Melchizedek, I want to suggest in a literary sense, in that he lives on, is true of Jesus in a literalistic sense, in that his priesthood is based on the power of an indestructible life. So he's going to unpack this as he goes on, but what happens for all these priests? They live, they die, they live, they die, they live, they die. Jesus, he is raised to life, bodily, physically, publicly, never to die again. His life is one based on the power of an indestructible life. Therefore, his priesthood is. Now, we do have the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, We're about to remember it, particularly Mary and Joseph and so on, back to Judah, he's told us that. But, do you remember Hebrews chapter 1, how the author introduced this Jesus? The eternal Son of God became flesh, one who is without beginning of days, who became man, who did die, but it was raised to life, who will never die again. What is true of Melchizedek in a literary sense is true of Jesus in a literalistic sense. He quite literally is a priest forever. And he's going to come back to that, and this is going to be one of the key reasons we desperately need his priesthood. But he still wants to assure his readers even further that Christianity isn't some breakaway rebellious religion, that it is actually the fulfilment of the Jewish hope of the Old Testament scriptures. How does he do it? Well, by pointing out that God promised this priesthood. He made an oath. That's verse 17 where he quotes Psalm 110 verse 4. For the sake of time, we won't turn back there now, but He's been referencing Psalm 110 a lot. This is a psalm written by David 1,000 years before Jesus. It's the only other place in the Bible that mentions Melchizedek. You've got that little bit of Genesis 14, we looked at it. One line here, then what we're looking at in Hebrews. Now, what's Psalm 110 doing? Well, there are a number of things, but one of them is God is giving David a revelation about a king who will reign forever and who will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. God's actually promised on oath, and as we saw last week, he will keep that oath, that there is a forever priest coming in the order of Melchizedek. In which case, this Levitical priesthood was always intended to be temporary and inferior. Catch that, that's exactly what he says in verse 18. The former regulation, the law of Moses, is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Did you just catch what the Bible said about the Bible? It's huge. Look at it again, verse 18. The former regulation, that is God's word through Moses about this priesthood, 
was set aside because it was weak and useless. <laughs> really? Did, did God's law, did God's word fail? Is there a problem with that? No. God's law that he gave through Moses was perfect in that it achieved everything it intended to. Thing is, it never intended to save sinners. It was useful in all sorts of ways. In fact, it still is useful for us. But it was always and will always be useless in terms of drawing a sinner near to a holy God. Not in the way that this new hope, Jesus, will draw us near to God. Now this is a big thing for us about God to catch, about how God works through history and in your life. And it's this, God doesn't have plan Bs. It's not as if he thought, all right, great, I'll, I'll create a covenant with my people through Moses and this is how we'll relate together and whoops, they keep breaking it, we can't relate. Um, hey son, come here, I need you to go on a mission for me. Not at all. Jesus is not God's plan B. God doesn't have plan Bs. He doesn't have a plan B for your life. He sovereignly rules all things so that whatever your life looks like, you can be assured it's plan A. God had announced, even during the time of this priesthood, that another one was coming, a better one. One whose priesthood would be forever. And so what we actually find is that this priesthood here was given to teach us, in the first place, these people, and then with those who have eyes to see, everyone since, teach us that we cannot draw near to God through law-keeping. That how could an animal, a goat, a bull, sacrificed, actually remove my guilt against God? Against like how could it actually? It can't. It never could. It was never intended to. It was intended to point us to a greater priesthood, one that we desperately need, one who has come in the order of Melchizedek that will never end who will always be able to stand between a holy God and you, a sinner. Have a look at verse 24. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. And all these other guys, they would live, die, live, die, live, die. His is permanent. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus can save us completely. From what? Save from what? From the wrath of God. From his just, righteous judgment on our lives for having rebelled against him, rejected him. Saved completely from that. And saved completely to every blessing that comes from relationship with God in drawing near to him. Friends, our greatest problem is not poor health, is not poor self-esteem, is not failing marriages, is not wandering children. They're all real problems. Our greatest problem 
is the chasm between us and a holy God. But God has sent a priest to cover that gap, whose priesthood is permanent, is forever, and so that he will always be there to draw you near to God. Of course, he achieves this in his death on the cross. Now, this is staggering. Verse 27, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. This is where the image has never been seen before. The category of the high priest would become the sacrifice, would become the substitute who would be slaughtered. And because of who this one is and because of the life that he has lived, this is a once-for-all sacrifice, never again needing to be repeated to remove the guilt of sinner. Achieved at the cross. Catch what this means for us. You have no need of anyone or anything else to draw near to God but Jesus. No one in a white robe. No saint may be in heaven. You have the very high priest as the Son of God who now dwells in the presence of God as your high priest. You have direct access to God through him. Now, that's a once-for-all sacrifice. Blasphemy to think that it needs to be repeated over and over again. Once-for-all, sufficient. But there is something that is ongoing in the work of Jesus. Did you catch it there, verse 25? He always lives to intercede for the people who draw near to God through him. What does that mean? Well, very quickly, it means that if you have put your faith in Jesus the resurrected Lord Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, he is always praying for you. He is always bringing your deepest needs before God Almighty. And here's the thing, God always hears him and answers him. Always. I mean, you know what it's like if we're honest. We, someone comes to us, would you pray for me in this? And we're like, yes. And we really mean yes. And maybe we do. And then three days, four days go, oh, that's right. I haven't prayed for you. Jesus always lives to always intercede, to always pray for those who have come to God through him. No matter what is going on in your life, you have a high priest pleading for you before the Father. This is a great comfort for us. Now be careful to avoid a mistake here though, that Jesus is the loving high priest, he loves me and he has to go to an angry God to appease God all the time and squeeze blessing out of him, so not at all. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only high priestly son. This is God's design. This is God's doing, that he might provide us with the high priest we so desperately need, who might intercede on our behalf, who might ask on our behalf so that he would gladly say yes. This is God's design. 
This is something that goes all the way back to the start of the Bible. Mysteriously, it took a long time to unfold. It was something that God re-announced in the time of David. And in the coming of Jesus, we have this high priest to close that gap. What do we do with this? We fix our eyes on Jesus. This is the big thing we do with this. I trust you take comfort in knowing that God has no plan B for your life. He sovereignly rules all things as a plan A for your good. I trust that you take great comfort that Jesus is there interceding for you. But what is the one thing this passage calls us to do? What is the only thing we're doing in this passage? Drawing near to God. Because when it comes down to it, that is what this entire book is about. If you are new today and you go, what? This entire book is about how an unholy people can draw near to a holy God. Or actually the reverse. How a holy God who loves unholy sinners who have rejected him can have an unholy people as his own, near to him. He's announced it. He's delivered in Jesus. The big thing we do with this is to draw near to him. Not by being good enough, not by being religious, but by looking to a high priest. I want to suggest three categories of people here today. Some of you, it is to draw near to God for the very first time. Maybe you've presumed that you're all right with God. You can come to God as you like, when you like it. You need a priest. Maybe you've used other priests or other means to think that's what will connect you to God. Come straight to your heavenly Father through his son Jesus today. Looking to him, trusting in him as your king, priest, once for all sacrifice. I think there's a second category of people. You have had a moment in your life where you've done that. And maybe you've had moments, seasons, even years of loving that truth, of being on fire as a Christian. But it feels like that's a long way behind you. And you actually sense a great distance between God. Well, today, this word is an invitation for you to again draw near. To again come back. And if there's one thing, there'll be many things, but if there's one thing that will generate distance between us and God, it's our unrepentant sin. Refusing to listen to the word, to listen to our conscience, to persist in it, there's a way to drive a wedge between you and God. Today is the day to repent, whatever it is, and I'll point out why in a moment, to again draw near to a God who'll have you Despite the way that you've been treating him, he'll have you in his son. Come back. And the third category is then to be all of us because this is a continual drawing near. This is not the thing you did when you prayed that prayer whenever it was. Again, this is an ongoing action to draw near to God. What does that mean? Well, the writer's actually going to spend another three chapters unpacking priesthood. And maybe, though you won't admit it, you'll be glad that we've actually got a whole year until we'll come back to these chapters in priesthood. But come to chapter 10, which is where he gets to the end of speaking about Jesus as priest. Look at what he would say to do with this. 
Verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. With a sincere heart. You can't play games with God. You can't just go through the motions and think you've ticked the box with God. Maybe for you today, what you need to do is go home, put yourself in a quiet space and be sincere with God with what is going on in your life, what has been going on with your life, to be since to come back, to be honest before him. A sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. This is the wonderful news of Jesus. No matter what you've done or failed to do, no matter how far your sin has gone, God's grace has gone further. Full assurance that trusting in this word of this once-for-all sacrifice, your high priest, means you can draw near to God. Then he says, which will, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water, then the big drum beat throughout the letter in light of who Jesus is, verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. There's the big thing. Come to Jesus and stick with Jesus. Hold fast to Jesus. Where else will you go? Who else can close that gap, can bring you into his presence? Whatever is going on in your life, this is a call to stick with him, to hold fast. Because he who promised is faithful last week. As we do this, as we hold fast, we demonstrate that God is faithful to his word, that he has a high priest who sacrificed himself, who intercedes on our behalf saying, Father, don't lose him. And as we hold to Jesus, we demonstrate that God is faithful to his word, to the intercession of his son, and we will see him. We will embrace salvation in all its fullness. Let me pray for us. Father, what a wonderful, rich word you have given us and we confess it's us who are slow to come to it. It's us who are easily distracted. It's us who pursue all sorts of things other than the goal that you have for us here. And so please forgive us. We thank you for the great confidence that we can have that Jesus is the one who from all eternity you have planned to send for sinners like us. Please, for those who are at distance from you, draw them near. For those of us who are trusting in Jesus, continue to draw us near. And might we be a people who to the very end continue to cling to the hope that we profess. We need you. We ask for your help in this, that you might be honoured as we long to see Jesus face to face. Amen.